Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Mathematics. Our guest today is Al Pazimentier, the lead author of Tools to Help Your Children Learn Math. Helping your children with math is one of the most important things a parent can do to further their children's educational progress, and Al has teamed with other math educators, psychologists, and counselors to write a book which many will find extremely helpful in what is often a difficult and frustrating job. Al, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Al, what motivated you to write this book? Well, it's a long story. And after about 55 years in the business, so to speak, um, I'm a little bit tired of having people constantly telling me how difficult it is for them to struggle through mathematics. And uh, I find that the primary reason that so many people find mathematics Um, sometimes unpleasant or uh, uh, frustrating is a result of poor teaching and also poor parental training. And so what we've tried to do here was to address the parental side of things, which probably uh, teachers could also benefit from uh, reading, Uh, namely that the parents need to have a positive feeling towards mathematics even if they, for whatever the reasons, um, don't like it themselves. Well, I'm sorry, how do negative attitudes towards mathematics arise, and what can be done to prevent or counteract them? Well, negative feelings are, as I said before, are passed down through the interactions that students have. Of course, there are people who have an innate ability to do mathematics, and we're not talking about them, we're talking about the average uh, student who uh, enters school without any uh, uh, handicaps in one way or positive or negative. And um, the, the one thing that I think is so important is that parents see mathematics at home as an important area and one that they encourage from the earliest days where a child learns to speak, they should also learn to quantify. They should count blocks and they should know how many fingers they're holding up and, you know, the very, very simple thing. And they should see it as fun. Now, what's happening today in the schools is that we we always have a shortage of math teachers. And I hate to say this, but unfortunately, um, in, in today's world, there is a bit of competition for a student who studies mathematics, and that is to go into a world of technology, whether it's programming, whether it's creating apps, or whatever the uh, technological uh, jobs are that are out there, compete with mathematics. So mathematics teachers who are not always paid all that well, most unfortunately, um, are not necessarily always the pick of the litter. Now, uh, that 
said, the parent needs to uh, chime in and support whatever is not done in the school. And by that, I mean they need to uh, naturally support the child's uh, daily activities in mathematics. And by the way, that can be a problem as well, because in many schools today, mathematics is not necessarily taught in the way that parents learned it when they went to school. I mean, one example in another field is, unfortunately, most unfortunately, today's students are not taught penmanship or script or uh, the, the proper writing style. And many young children have horrible handwriting because of that. So that's one thing. The second thing is the way mathematics is taught is to try to emphasize the quantitative uh, processes that underlie the automatic procedures that were taught decades back. And so parents, seeing that the child comes home with something that they themselves don't understand is, is a bit of a difficult thing. I know that my son-in-law at one time was so frustrated, and he, he's a He's got several advanced degrees. When his sons came home, my grandchildren, and didn't understand what the heck they were doing in school. I, I tried to explain it to him, but he said, you know what? I'm just going to teach them how to divide the way I learned how to divide. And for whatever that's, you know, it's, you know, that's what goes on in many households, the parents. So we have a chapter in this book that tries to explain to parents how children are taught arithmetic and the, the basic foundations of mathematics. But as I said a moment ago, parents should see mathematics as a very positive thing. One problem that occurs very, very often is because most, the, the, the vast majority of our population, educated or uneducated, seems to be proud not to not having been good in mathematics. If I go into a social setting and I tell them that my field is mathematics, the first reaction I get is, oh, I was always terrible in mathematics, and look what I am today, a lawyer, a doctor, a, a, a successful businessman. And I say to myself, my gosh, if I said I was in biology or chemistry, no one would say that. But by saying that they were not good in math, and despite that, look, I'm successful, it's horrible. And that gets passed on in one way or another very often to children. And that is a horrible, horrible thing to do because the child should get to like mathematics. And there are so many ways to do that as we try to address in the book, not just to tell the child, hey, there are so many useful things we do in the world that rely on mathematics, but also that they can have fun and look at mathematics, its beauty and, and the, the fun things you can do with numbers and 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 uh, sort of symbolic arrangements and so on and so forth. Well, that brings up the question of how can parents convince children that not only is math important, but it can actually be interesting and enjoyable if it wasn't interesting and enjoyable for them? Well, my first response, and I hate to put it in such blunt terms, is pick up our book and read it. Because we have it, the second half of the book gives a plethora of ideas that parents can use to show kids some very, very simple things and how beautiful uh, mathematics is. For example, why does why is a sewer cover round? And the, most people say, why? What the heck? I mean, 
uh, maybe because it, you can fit into it better. People go down into the into the below street level or whatever. And it's a very, very simple reason. And we discussed that with with some um, additions to that. And the reason is very simple. The reason that the sewer cover is round is because when they take the sewer cover off, which is very heavy, they typically yank it with a steel bar and just slide it off. And then when they're finished with it, they push it back on because the sewer cover that's round can never fall into the hole. A square one can. And then they've got a real problem on their hands. So there's one example that they can just quickly talk about something that's out there. Or they may say to the child, you know, you're learning about circles now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, supposing our bathtub had two uh, holes for emptying the water. Each one was a circular hole, which was, say, uh, two inches in diameter. And we have a second possibility. The plumber is offering us a second possibility to have one hole, which would be four inches in diameter. Which do you think we should have for emptying our, our, our bathtub? And a child typically would say, well, two holes are better than one. And the truth of the matter is, it's wrong. It's the bigger hole is better than the two smaller holes. And that can be shown with a very simple application of 2 pi r, the one thing that all parents remember from their schooling. And uh, there you go, showing how useful mathematics can be. So... I I'm think sorry. you mean 2 pi r squared. What did I say? 2 pi r. You got I'm the sorry. Pi r <laughs> That's okay. I, I just... I, 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 uh, <laughs> I was just checking to see if you were listening. Yeah, okay. That'll work. <laughs> because sometimes I drift off during interviews, so that's a good check. Yeah, well, I was... <laughs> Um, uh, no, I think that's a very interesting question, and it brings up something that I think is extremely important about your book, is to have lots of examples like this in which you can show things that are related to situations that do arise, that do connect with mathematics, to interest the child, not only because it's important, but because it's sort of counterintuitive. That's the type of thing that makes mathematics appealing, I think. Yeah, but there are also fun things you can do, and there are a, a plethora of fun things, all very, very simple, that you can show uh, students that or uh, kids at, at just about any age. Um, for example, a child has just learned subtraction, let's say, and the parent wants to have him practice subtraction. So you tell them to take any three-digit number, any at all, and... Uh, reverse the digits, and subtract the two numbers. Then reverse the digits, add the two numbers. And no matter what numbers they start with, as long as they're, uh, they have different uh, digits, make it simple, um, you will always end up with 1,089. And you can have the kid do it over and over, and the kid would say, gee, how come I started with completely different numbers each time, and I always end up with 1089? And this is a, you know, a parent can then, if they wish, explain what's going on. But uh, there are peculiarities in our number system that lend themselves very nicely to uh, motivating students with their patterns. Yeah, I think that's a good feature of your book, that you have a lot of those intriguing things in there. Um, what types of disconnect occur between what parents say about math and how children interpret what they say? Well, I should say that the, um, what a parent tells a child 
at almost any age, even adults, has a great deal of influence, far more influence than you could ever imagine. I'm sure all many listeners will say, gee, I can remember my father said this, or my mother always used to do this or that. You tend to forget, not to forget what it's just part of the uh, rearing process. So it's extremely important that parents that is interesting and that they show that they're engaged with. For example, they could tell stories about mathematics, history, or whatever. For example, there's a very, very cute story about one of the most famous German mathematicians of all time, Carl Friedrich Gauss, very famous, a brilliant man. He was in elementary school in Germany, and the teacher wanted to keep the class busy because he had some work to do. So the teacher said, take out your slates, because in those days they used paper, they used slates with chalk. And I want you to add up the numbers from 1 to 100 and keep quiet and don't look around. And before the teacher finished his uh, explaining what was to be done, young Gauss, who was about 10 years old at the time, raised his hand and said, I've got the answer. And the teacher said, be quiet now. You heard what I said. Work on those numbers from 1 to, add the numbers from 1 to 100 and don't disturb the rest of the class. And so little Gauss sat there quietly for about a half hour waiting for the rest of the class to finish their addition. And when the teacher then called on the class for a, a, a sum, which was what they got on their addition, the only one who got it right was Gauss. Now, what the heck did he do and how did he do so quickly? Well, this is a cute story you tell kids, but you, of course you tell them in a more a dramatic way than I'm telling you now because I'm just trying to cut to the chase. But uh, what they do, uh, the kids were doing is one plus two plus three plus four plus five plus six and so on and so forth until they got to uh, 100. And Gauss said, that's when he, to himself, of course, that's silly. I can add those this way. One plus 100 is 101. Two plus 99 is 101. Three plus 98 is 101. Gee, I got 50 of these pairs. So 50 times 101 is 50-50, finished. And when you show this to a kid, of course, much more slowly than I explained it just now, uh, it has an effect. Say, gee, this math is interesting stuff. And when you show that kind of stuff and you talk about little stories that occurred, it, it's very, very interesting. Uh, you can, I mean, there, there are just endless things. And as I say, we've got about half the book covers things of this kind which parents can use and which probably would entertain the parents as well because they may not be familiar with it. And it's all within the grasp of a young child where uh, the parent will be comfortable explaining it. Yeah, one of the things that I like your book is that you not only have the Gauss story, which is one of the iconic stories that all math students learn, but there are lots of other stories as well. And that's, uh, I hope we're, we have time to get to them. But if we don't, we can answer some of the more important questions that I may, might be more immediately relevant to someone who's trying to uh, teach their children math. And what types of behavioral interventions can be used to improve a child's performance in school? I assume you're not pl planning on spanking them when I get bees. No, 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 no. First of all, we tend to think, and I don't know if we're right or not, that kids have a certain anxiety uh, with regard to mathematics. Uh, the kid might uh, 
be on his way to school knowing he has a test on that day, saying, you know, Mom, I really don't feel well today. I don't think I want to go to school. And the anxiety somehow is manifested in his body and, and, and has a negative effect. Well, I think the important aspects that, and we address this in greater detail, of course, is support the child, show an understanding for the anxiety that he has, empathy, uh, somehow self let him self-recognize that the upset is caused by something that is dealable and, and so on. And also kind of telling the kid making mistakes is okay and showing that, uh, you know, that you're not, this, this is not the end all and start all of life, but it's a part of it and you'll do it. You'll be okay and be supportive. You know, the one thing that, um, that, is very, very important, and it comes up so often, and I think a lot of listeners may find themselves guilty of this, although unintentionally uh, being done, is a child comes home with two exams. He gets a, let's say, a 75 on an English exam and a 75 on a math exam, and the parent says, my goodness, how can you get only 75 in English? You speak English, we speak English at home, you write it, we work with you. How can you get a Terrible, unacceptable. What about the math test? Well, you got a 75 minute. That's passing. And I'm so glad you passed because I really didn't do better myself. Well, when a parent says that, that is the kiss of death when it comes to uh, helping a student with math. Because the expectation for the kid at this point is math is not, I'm okay in that. My, I'm, I'm passing. That's all she cares about. But the other one, oh my God, I got to work on that English because that's totally unacceptable. So right there, the parent has a great deal of influence by showing that their performance in math and their interest in doing well in math is not at the same level as their literate or uh, uh, reading ability in, in English. You know, one of the things that I liked about your book is that you touch on one of the most important aspects of helping a child learn math finding out what the child's likes and interests are, and learning where math appears in these areas. Yeah, that's uh, obviously in sports and so on. I mean, there's a, a cute little example in a book where if a kid, maybe a kid shoots pool or plays billiards at, in high school, and how you can show by just placing a mirror down on the against the cushion of a, a pool table, uh, how the reflection of the ball in the pool table uh, will tell you how to uh, where 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 to hit the cushion in order to hit the ball. So, I mean, there are those kinds of examples. And uh, uh, in sports, of course, there are lots of examples. Like, for example, if you're running down the sideline of a uh, uh, of a soccer field, and you want to know where along the sideline do I have the best angle to shoot for the goal. And that's simple geometry. Of course, it's probably better. That's probably more a high school geometry uh, example. But still, it's an example where geometry can show a certain usefulness beyond just doing proofs. See, one of the problems in our curriculum, and I will say this, I say our, because the United States' curriculum in geometry is different from probably most of the rest of the world. We spend an entire year on geometry, dealing with it from axioms, postulates, theorems, and proving, 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 proving. And 
the the rest of the world does not do that much with proving theorems and geometry as we do. Consequently, by what we do is we go through an entire year in a Euclidean sense, and at the end, when a student leaves a course, they'll say, well, what did you learn? Oh, we did a lot of proofs. But what's missing there is what did they prove? The beauty of some of the things they prove is often missing, and sometimes a slight digression by the teacher to show some unusual properties in geometry can be so motivating. And if you, you know, just to uh, to, to, to take a half hour once a month, say, and do something that's not necessarily going to be tested or it's in the curriculum. For example, to show a student how you can prove that every triangle they draw is isosceles. Well, we know that's not true, but there's something wrong with the proof. After you've been learning all about proofs, what's wrong with the proof? And just to show them that, a lot of kids say, oh, my God, this is amazing. Why didn't anybody ever show me this? And that kind of stuff can be very motivating. And unfortunately, teachers um, are too concerned about teaching to the test because they, in many states, they're being rated by how well their students do on exams. And consequently, uh, a lot gets lost because they're only interested in how the kid is going to perform. And that's not uh, the best way to motivate students. Uh, yes, and that's not the best way to motivate teachers either. That's true. <laughs> uh, in learning arithmetic, what do you think is the balance between learning concepts and learning facts such as the addition and multiplication tables? That's a very good question. And I wish I had the answer to that because today the, the uh, instruction is very much interested in understanding the, 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 the background of what various arithmetic processes do, whether it's multiplication, addition, division, subtraction, and downplays to some extent the algorithm for doing it. And I, it brings me to a, a thought, I, uh, a, a, an experience I had years ago and I'm just going to mention it because it, it's somewhat appropriate to what's going on now. In 1990, I was a visiting professor at the University of Vienna. And the university asked me if I would be willing to spend an hour a week or two with a group of school psychologists. Well, I said, I'm not a psychologist. But no, no, I think you can help them because of what their job is. I said, well, what is their job? Their job as school psychologists is not what we think of a school psychologist. It's a person who uses, I guess, psychology to make teachers more effective in the classroom. So I said, yeah, okay, I'll meet them. And the first time I met them, I said, well, what kind of problems do you have? Well, we have a great deal of trouble teaching, uh, with teachers having trouble teaching subtraction. I said, oh, yeah, really? Well, what's the problem? Well, uh, I said, one of you come up to this board and and uh, show me how you subtract. Because I knew that they subtract very differently from the way we subtract. Matter of fact, in the literature, it's called the Austrian method of subtraction because most of Europe, which was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire at one time, does it that way. So this young woman came up and she showed, we, I put two, three-digit numbers on the board, and she subtracted them, and she did blip, 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 and she did it. I said, well, what did you do? I said, well, I 
and she did it automatically very quickly. I said, do you understand why what you did works? No, no, it just works. <clears throat> I said, well, do you see what you've done? Now, what we are very, very different from what, what our method where you borrow from one to bring to the other if it's not large enough to subtract it. They add to the bottom to get to the top, add to the bottom, get to the top. And when I explained to them what, in fact, they did, which they had no clue about, they were enlightened. And they said, my goodness, now we can go and help the teachers because now we understand what that algorithm actually does. So when you have algorithms and you teach them the way perhaps we learned uh, arithmetic decades ago, um, it, it just done automatically. You're not asked why, you just do it. And most parents just do it and don't know why they do it, even the, the algorithms that we're all accustomed to. So perhaps understanding why something happens can be helpful. However, and that's the process. However, the reason that perhaps, and I'm just being a little, I'm trying to be modern here, that the uh, algorithms may not be as necessary as they were decades ago is that everybody uses a calculator today. If you have a smartphone, you've got a calculator in your hand. And most people don't bother doing a division. You want to see, well, I just want to check how my mileage on my, my, on my automobile is. And I want to see how many miles per gallon I get. Well, I'm not going to do that division. I just take miles divided by gallons. And that's how many miles per gallon I get. And I just do it on, computer, on the calculator. So the question then is, how important is the, 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 the algorithm? It's a tough question. Of course, the old school thinking is you got to know how to multiply, divide, subtract, and add. But in, in actual fact today, no one's without a calculator. So the question becomes a little bit uh, troubling. Well, what do you see as the proper role for calculators in the classroom? Huh. If a teacher uses, well, there are, well, there are different kinds of calculators, I should sure, say. Sure. Uh, if we're talking about just an arithmetic, simple calculator, then I guess it's up to the teacher to decide, are they now more interested in the process of whatever they're teaching and not where, where, where the calculation is a means to an end rather than an end in itself? Then perhaps the calculator is good to have there so they're not distracted. If, on the other hand, the the uh, the uh, calculation process is the end in itself, then it's a different story, and clearly uh, the calculator has no place other than to check their work. Now, then we talk about other kinds of calculators. If we have a scientific calculator and you want to, uh, and using it in calculus, again, that's a call that the teacher makes, and I, I you know, with the with Education being states' rights, uh, I'm a little bit careful about what I say uh, with regard to our national picture in that regard. Um, my next question, you could probably take um, several days to answer each one of them. So I'd like sort of a general overview of how do, can parents help explain the different arithmetic operations such as addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division? I think they have to understand it first. Well, it depends at what age they're doing that. I mean, if they're doing addition at the uh, very pre-K pre uh, with blocks and 
fingers and talk about adding and subtracting. I mean, that's simple. I, I think it's it's basically uh, showing physical um, entities. And I, the short answer is we have a rather long chapter in the book that explains the the way of thinking in terms of the calculations today. I think that's good. You know, there were a lot of things that I liked about your book, and that's one of them, because a lot of parents simply as, you know, like the Austrian psychologist, whatever algorithm they're using, they just do it and they don't understand what it is. And that doesn't really help. All it does is uh, uh, perpetuate automatic processes and not thinking about what mathematics really is. That's right. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, I think we've sort of touched on this, but what are procedural fluency and computational fluency? And do you think one is more important than the other? Well, as I said, uh, clearly, I would say procedural is more important because procedural means problem solving. Um, in, you know, I've, as, I, as you probably know, I've written several books about problem solving at, at various levels. <clears throat> And that's the procedural thing. And we need problem solving, not just in mathematics, but in, in real life as well. I mean, for example, very often we're trying to deal with a situation and say, well, in a worst case scenario, this or that will happen. And that's already a very significant problem solving procedure also in mathematics. So the, the procedural, I think, is more important. The, the uh, uh, mechanical is something that, as I said a moment ago, if a person doesn't know how to add two numbers, he's still got that smartphone in front of him with the calculator. And as long as he knows to add, because that the procedural is the question, do you know, are you supposed to add or subtract two, two, two numbers? So the procedural, I think, would be more important. Um, one of the things also we've touched upon is the fact that math is often useful and occasionally beautiful. What balance do you think parents should seek between the useful aspects of math and the beautiful aspects of math in trying to help their children understand and appreciate math? That's a great question. I belong to the school of thought that the beauty of math can be more motivating than the usefulness for the following reason. What is useful to a parent may not necessarily be useful to a student. What is useful to a teacher who lives in the suburbs and teaches in the inner city and has to deal with, say, mowing a lawn, and, it, for example, the very popular question in the old uh, algebra books was, Johnny can mow a lawn in three hours, his father can mow a lawn in one hour, how long will it take them to mow the lawn together? And if a kid in the inner city is faced with that problem, I having taught in the 60s in the inner city, remember very well that it was not unusual that a kid would respond, what's a lawn? And so the, the question then becomes silly. So although the usefulness, when, a prop, when appropriately placed and when appropriately selected and presented in a good, easy, useful way can be very, very motivating, the more... Um, uh, uh, general way and uh, uh, where you don't have to worry about student being re relating to it or not is the beauty of mathematics can be shown in so many ways um, and as I've written a number of books on that as well where you can actually show how 
the number relationships, geometric relationships are just mind-boggling. Um, for example, if you and and this take this goes just a, sm a smidge higher, but if you sometimes you know in geometry we have a, an area called spherical geometry. In other words, the geometry on a sphere, and a, a lot of what we've learned about on a plane, like a piece of paper, is no longer true on a sphere. And, you know, the, there are the great circles, which are the only lines we talk about. And it's very interesting because a triangle, which we, in, on a piece of paper, we know the sum of the angles of a triangle is 180 degrees. On a sphere, it's between 360 and 540. But you can also just, here's an example of where you say to them, which of the 48 states is closest to the continent of Africa? And most people respond to that by saying, oh, well, it's probably Florida because that's south. That's wrong. It is not Florida. The place that's closest to the continent of Africa of the 48 continental states is Maine. And you it's by a thousand miles closer to Africa than Florida. And the only way you can explain that is to look at the darn uh, sphere, the globe, and see that that's really true. But I was saying these... Florida too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So even if you have a lot of understanding of mathematics, which I think I do, nonetheless, <laughs> that's very subtle. And uh, uh, I, as I say, um, I like counterintuitive questions. I think counterintuitive questions are and, and ideas are intriguing. So I'm glad you have things like that in the book. Yeah, well, you know, we also have things that are cute and you know, and I'm sure you know, uh, there are things that I don't know if we have it in this book, what's called the Monty Hall problem, uh, which is um, the the old show of Let's Make a Deal on television where a uh, contestant was told to go to the stage where there were three doors closed and they were to pick a door and behind two doors were the, I think, a, a, a donkey and behind one door is a car. And if they pick the car, they win the car. If they pick the donkey, they get nothing. And so the contestant goes up there and let's say stands next to door number three. Now, the host, Monty Hall, uh, who recently passed away, as a matter of fact, um, Monty Hall um, knew where the, the goats and the car were. And he goes and he exposes intentionally one of the goats. And now there are two doors still closed. And he says, would you like to stay with the door you initially selected? Or would you rather go to the other door, which you have not selected? And at this point, in the old uh, versions of the uh, game show on TV, the, the audience would start yelling, switch, stick, switch, stick. And the contestant would have to decide which is the better strategy. And as I say, there are books written about this problem. It has been front page of the New York Times at least twice. And it is still argued among mathematicians to which is the best strategy. Well, I think one can prove that the best strategy is to go to the door, the switch to the other door. But again, why that happens can be so easily explained to a student. And then they get a feeling for what probability is and what its value is. I mean, there is the, the birthday problem is another example of how counterintuitive it is. In other words, and I've done this with classes when I taught in high school. I, I spoke to 
uh, teachers in a, in a hall corridor. And I said, I'm going to send a student around next period, if you don't mind. And I want all the students in your class to write on a little slip of paper their birthday. And we had 10 packets of these. Each one had about 30 some odd students in it. And uh, I told the class, now we have these 10 packets. What do you, how many do you think will have a match of birth dates? And they said, oh, my God, with 366 possible birth dates, including the uh, leap year, it's going to be very small. When I told them it would probably be seven out of ten times. No, that can't be. Sure enough, we opened the packets, we counted, and there were seven of the ten uh, 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 classes had a match of birth dates. And that is counterintuitive, but it is the simplest form of probability which kids learn now at even earlier ages than they did previously. So there, there are fun examples that you can do with classes and even parents can do it. You know, if you take, for example, the first 30 presidents, two of them were born on November 2nd, Harding and Polk. And three of them, and this is not funny, and, and it, I just mentioned it as a, uh, for entertainment purposes, three of them died on the same day. And that's the most famous day on our calendar, the 4th of July. And those three were, two of them died on the very same day, Adams and Jefferson, the very same day, because they waited for the most important day in their lives, the day when we kind of broke from that place on the other side of the Atlantic. And uh, then Monroe died a couple of years later, also on the 4th of July, because that was an important day, which somehow psychologists, would, psychologists have argued you can will your death date. So uh, they probably want to stay alive till they witness that day just one more time. In any case, but that's an interesting uh, probability question. When two, what's the chance of having two people at the same birth date in a group of 30 or so people? The, the amazing thing, if you take it one step further, which one can do and a good teacher would do and pa perhaps a parent as well, is to say, is to show the kids if you do the loop calculation and with calculators, that's not impossible to do, or let's put it this way, it's easy to do. Uh, is to say, well, if you have 55 people in a room, what's the likelihood of having two people at the same birthday? It's almost certain. It's 0.9. I mean, that's incredible. 55 people in a room where you have 366 possible dates, and you're almost certain to have two people at the same birth date, not the year, just the month and day. Yeah, um, uh, I've I've always liked both the examples that you gave, both the Monty Hall problem and the birthday problem, because probability is becoming increasingly more important, both in school and in our world. And these are great ways to interest children in it. Um, you mentioned the idea of the uh, of the map and uh, f and Maine being the closest state to Africa, which I still don't believe, but I'm sure you're right. Um, do you have any? <laughs> I can't call you on it, and obviously you've studied. It, but boy, that's a that's a stunner to me. And also, one of the things that um, my wife goes to trivia things, and I'll have to tell her that because I'm sure someone will ask it at some stage. Um, but do you have another example that might illustrate how geometry can be made interesting for children? Oh my God, there's so many. I've written tons of books about it. Um, Just one. Um, if they have the capability, his one is. I, I guess simple. I don't know. I'm trying to think which is the simplest. There's so many. Um, 
one possibility is the famous Morley fear, uh, Frank Morley, discovered around 1900 or so, where if you take any triangle at all, now perhaps kids have the ability to draw triangles on a, uh, on a, on a laptop or a tablet or whatever, computer, and draw a triangle, and then figure out a clever way of trisecting each of the angles. Tris- in other words, dividing each of the angles into three equal parts. Now, I know we, we all know that that's not possible with a straight edge and compass, so I'm not going to say, but we surely know that angles can be trisected. And if you take the adjacent trisectors and you mark their points of intersection, regardless of the shape of the triangle, those three points of intersection will always be an equilateral triangle. Yeah, that's an absolutely great and beautiful theorem. And uh, certainly what you need to do is you need to, you, uh, you probably need something like, uh, you know, uh, you can actually do it on paper but and get pretty close to an equilateral triangle. But having some sort of uh, mechanical device to do it, such as a uh, software program or something like that, I think there are some geometry sketch pads or things like that which do that very nicely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, you have a chapter in the book entitled Fun with Mathematics, and we've sort of been discussing this throughout the entire uh, interview, but how can children be persuaded that mathematics can be fun? What types of activities reinforce this? Is there something you can do other than just giving them examples? Or is that basically the idea is to just have a lot of examples and give them the interesting ones? Well... (sighs) You know, that, that there's so much. I, I'm thinking, what fun with mathematics? Hmm. Well, I think sometimes fun is to see unusual and unexpected things. And there's a plethora of things you can do with numbers, just numbers, number relationships, and stuff like that. That, that just, uh, for example, if you take did, uh, numbers, uh, two-digit numbers that end in nine, like 39 or 79, and you take the product of the digits and the sum of the digits, you're going to get the number 39. In other words, 3 times 9 is 27. 3 plus 9 is 12. 27 and 12, 39. You can do that with 79. 7 times 9, 63. 7 plus 9, 16. 16 and 63, 79. So that's a fun thing. Or you can talk about Fibonacci. Now, you know, I've, I've written a book about Fibonacci. Uh, most, some, a lot of people are not even familiar with who Fibonacci was. Leonardo of Pisa, as he was known, who probably was born around 1170 and died, oh, maybe, we're not completely sure, 1240 or so. And uh, he wrote a book in 1202. And the parents can ex- just tell the story in a more uh, dramatic way than I'm telling it now. He wrote a book called Liber Abaci in 1202. And the first sentence in his book, the very first sentence, he says, I came across these Indian numbers, 987654321, and also a zephyr, which was a zero. And he calls them Indian numbers. Because as a young man, young child, his father worked on the African coast at a, a Pisan um, uh, 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 landing, if you will, uh, 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 outpost, and he and young uh, 
Leonardo is, was his name, young Leonardo, um, played around with the uh, Arab mathematicians who were there, and he saw them using these symbols. But the Arabs got them from India. That's why we call them Hindu Arabic numerals. And, you know, a parent could explain that this is the first time in the European world that these numerals appeared. And it took 50 years before they started using, because before that time, they were using uh, the Roman numerals. And you say to yourself, how did they do arithmetic without these numerals? Because that's what we're so accustomed to. And then you can go and talk about the Fibonacci numbers, which come later on. And also Fibonacci was responsible for a lot of the symbols that we use today, like the fraction bar and so on. But he's called Fibonacci. Was, his name was... Um, Leonardo of Pisa, and later on tagged Fibonacci comes from uh, the f family of Bonacci. But in any case, in chapter 12 of the book, he has a problem about the regeneration of rabbits, which very simply states if a pair of rabbits requires one month to mature and then has another pair of rabbits who also need a month to mature and they keep on producing rabbits each month, how many rabbits will there be at the end of a year? And if you list the number of rabbits each month, the first uh, uh, pairs of rabbits each month, you have one pair, then one pair, then two pairs, and three pairs, and five pairs, and so on. Each time, the number, the next number is always the sum of the two preceding numbers. Those are the famous Fibonacci numbers, which are everywhere in our society, our culture, wherever you look. If you count the number of spirals on a... Uh, uh, on a pine cone, on a pineapple, always Fibonacci numbers. If you count the number of um, of, um, of, of those white, um, what do you call them, things on a on a daisy flower, one that hasn't been plucked, uh, there'll always be a Fibonacci number of those. And it, it's just an amazing thing. You can use the Fibonacci numbers automatically to convert miles to kilometers and kilometers to miles. So, I mean, the parent, the, the, it's endless. As I say, there's a book I wrote uh, several years ago called uh, The Fabulous Fibonacci Numbers, which goes into every aspect of these numbers because they cover every aspect, including finance. So I, I just, you know, there's no end to how you can entice kids with mathematics. It's just that the parent needs to start off and open up a little bit and see that there is life beyond uh, the school year's mathematics that they had many years ago, which in many cases were not very uh, motivating. Yeah, well, I know that I got interested in mathematics when a situation arose that my father told me that if you took a two-digit number and reversed the digits and subtracted the smaller from the larger, it was always divisible by nine. And I can remember trying that with 53, 53 minus 35 is 18, divisible by nine, works for any number whatsoever, and I was absolutely fascinated by it. And I think that one of the things that, you that we've mentioned during this interview is that I think children have an innate interest in numbers. They just, uh, I've uh, admittedly, I don't know children, uh, I don't know children all that well because I don't have any, but nonetheless, the ones that I've met, 
are intrigued by numbers. And there's lots of things that you can do with numbers to stimulate that intrigue. And it's not a far, it, it's not far from number patterns to arithmetic, the gateway to algebra and stuff like that. So I think there's a lot about your book that I would definitely commend to parents because it's not necessarily the way that everybody would look at how can, they can improve, uh, they can improve their child's understanding of mathematics. But I think you've chosen a very, very useful and very beautiful way and intriguing way of going about it. And there's one question that I'm always asked in classes, and I, I know parents ask me that, and so perhaps you could answer this one. Why can't we divide by zero? <laughs> well, that's a very good... That The best way to explain why we can't divide by zero... I always find, is to show that if we are allowed to divide by zero, we can prove that one equals two or five equals three and do all kinds of crazy things that uh, tell us that dividing by zero would screw up our entire understanding of knowledge of mathematics. So rather than to deal with the philosophical aspect of dividing by nothing, um, is the best way to show, assume it is allowed. And then I can show you very easily, and we do it in the book as well, uh, that you can uh, show that one equals two. And you could, and the only reason that one doesn't equal two is because you're not allowed to divide by zero. Yeah. I, whenever I've taught the course, any course, I've always called that the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not divide by zero. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I always find in some, some when I teach is that a lot of the time students think these rules were rules that were decided by a bunch of people who sat down at a table in a coffee house in 1740 and say, OK, let's agree that you're not allowed to divide by zero, sort of like laws are being made. But that's not the way that's not the way arithmetic and mathematics works. And I think it's important that uh, that children and parents get to appreciate that here's something with a logical structure. Um, yeah. The rules come from, you know, the rules come from the intrinsic way the things are defined and the logical relationships they have to have. Um, yeah, as I say, the, uh, the important thing here is that I'm assuming that the parents that we're talking about are typical of parents, which means they are not really in love with mathematics. They haven't had a very great mathematics experience because those who did, we're not really need to address them. They know how to do it innately. But the majority of the people out there are in the camp that I would consider proud not have to not having been good in mathematics in their youth. And so in this book, we address some psychological aspects, behavioral, how you should behave, then, of course, the arithmetic things that parents might want to know which they uh, so that they can communicate with their kids who come home from school at the elementary levels with arithmetic that they don't understand what the heck they're doing. And then a good portion of the book is how you can entertain your student, your, your children at all levels. I mean... You know, you can walk down the street and look at a bunch of license plates on cars and ask the kids for uh, to what, what relationship do they have? And that leads to let, look for a palindromic number. And palindromic numbers, you know, numbers are read in both directions the same, are very exciting. 
You know, there's a funny situation, and I, I just mentioned, because you can take this to an extreme, where if you saw the movie uh, The Man Who Knew Infinity about Ram Ramanujan, the last scene, I believe, was where G.H. Uh, Hardy, the famous British mathematician, visits him in a hospital. He's in his early 30s and about to die. And he says, wants to make small talk with him. And he says, you know, I just came here on a, in a taxi and the number was in the four digit number he gave him. I don't recall the number. 1,729. <laughs> Glad you asked. Correct. That's it. I, I didn't want to say because I didn't want to make a mistake. But that is the number. And he said uh, uh, to Ramajan, I, I can't understand what anybody could do with that number. And Ramanjan, lying there half dead, uh, says immediately without batting, oh, that's the smallest number that can be so, uh, that can be expressed as the sum of two cubes. And you say now... In that, two different ways. Yeah. And, and, and that's so crazy that, you know, that's a brilliant genius person uh, that we're not talking about those people. But we're talking about looking at the license plates and saying... Well, that's an interesting uh, number. What, what are they? Oh, they're all even numbers, or they're consecutive, or they're odd numbers, or um, the well. If while talking about um, um, palindromic numbers, a parent wants to take a kid and talk about palindromic numbers. You know what? I'm going to show you a little something today. Let's sit down here at the dinner table or after dinner. Take any number, two-digit number, reverse it, and add. Take your answer, reverse it and add, reverse and add, reverse and add. And eventually, most of the time, they will come up with a palindromic number at one point or another. Of course, if they choose a number, I believe it's 97, it's not going to work. So there are numbers, I think that's the only number up to 100 that doesn't work. Um, but there are a few numbers, every 100 numbers or so, there's one or two that doesn't work. But when we start with a two-digit number... and you know, I did a uh, an op-ed in the year, the, the 2nd of January, 2002, because 2002 was a... Um, Palindromic number. Year. And New York Times did a, a half-page uh, op-ed on it, where I explained all this. And people, I've, several hundred people wrote me with questions and so on and so forth. And one guy said, you know, I've done this 20 times and it didn't work. The number he chose, you had to do it 24 times and it did work. <laughs> <laughs> Al, you mentioned that you had hundreds of people ask you questions. One of the things that I've always found about you is your responsive to questions. And um, since we're coming to the end of the interview, I'd like you to tell uh, tell us how the parents or people who have listened to this interview can get in touch with you. Well, I will be happy to give you my uh, email address. Do and so. It's ASP. Uh, that's A as in Alfred, S as in Stephen, P as in Pazimentier, uh 1818 at gmail.com. And I will respond to everybody immediately. Terrific. Al, thank you so much for the interview and best of luck with the book. Thank you. I look you. forward to talking with you in the future. And I look forward to getting your comments about the book. I hope you like it. <laughs> okay, take care. <laughs> All the best to you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.